This is Charlene Harris, author of the Sookie Stackhouse novels, and you are listening to Too Much Scrolling. I'll see you in the future. Regular Hours, episode 133 for October 13th, 2020. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Chip Hessenflow. And I'm Pam Vidar. <laughs> and, and we're here for... We're, we're, this is a very serious episode, guys. This is Dracula Part 2, the second part of the classic Bram Stoker's tale of uh, Transylvania. Ah, 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 ah. Blah, blah, blah. I don't say blah, blah, blah. <laughs> Ugly. Can we have Uncle Deadly? Can he come? Can they come visit? Boy, this part was an action movie, huh, Pam? Well, isn't it interesting how different part two is from part one? And that was the first thing I wanted to ask you, and especially you, Chip, if you don't mind me picking you out as the reading first time reader. Yes. Obviously, we spent a lot of the first portion of the novel with Jonathan Harker and his perspective. And here the focus is much more on Lucy. So I was just curious uh, which you preferred and why. Well, I really liked the first part. Um, and what I liked about it was Jonathan is, is brought to this strange land, certainly not something that's part of his everyday experience. He's young, he's eager, and then he realizes he's trapped. But Lucy's uh, story is, is different. This section that we're reading she is, uh, well, um, she's losing lots of blood is what we, we've, we're, we, don't, we don't know yet, but I guess we are learning this. And it's just different. It's, it's different. It's not, I, I really like the first part, but the second part is an action movie. It's like, we got to take action now. Okay, hurry up, man. We got to do this done. And it, we, we're constantly kind of moving forward. My guess is in the third part, we'll, we'll start getting, um, it'll all start coming together. We definitely get the narrative moving here, even though we are reading this through letters and clips from the newspaper, we get some great dialogue, we get some great character development here, and yes, the focus on Lucy and what is happening to her and the mystery, it's hard to see it as a mystery when Dracula has been around for 120 years, like, we know what's happening to Lucy, and that was one thing that kept going through my mind as I was reading this, is were people when they read this for the first time, not understanding what was happening, because we have an understanding based on 120 years of history. Well, and, you know, it's sort of a medical mystery, right? Like, mm -hmm. what's going on with Lucy? And we first see it from Mina's perspective. And then, so you get, this is a very gendered novel, right? Mm -hmm. So we first see Lucy through Mina's eyes. And... Mina thinks that Lucy's sleepwalking, right? And so she has her own perspective on what might be going on. And Lucy is very pretty. She's very charming. She's very desirable. She's 19 years old. She has these three suitors. She's about to class jump, right? She's about to move from the middle class into the aristocracy by marrying Arthur. And from Mina's perspective... Lucy needs to be protected a little bit, right? So one of my favorite scenes is the one where Lucy's sleepwalking, quote unquote. She goes out in the dark and gloomy night 
and Mina realizes that Lucy's not in the house and she runs out after her. And what does she find? You're talking about the old guy gnawing on her? <laughs> it's a dark shadow, Chip. <laughs> <laughs> the old guy gnawing on her. That's the subtitle of Dracula. Dracula, the old guy gnawing on her. <laughs> So we see a dark shadow and it's all super gothic, right? Mm -hmm. Like a dark and stormy night. And then when Mina finds Lucy and she's leading her home, she's wearing only a nightdress. So this is totally scandalous. And Mina gives Lucy her shoes. Did you guys notice that detail? I did not. But I, I that the is shoes fascinating. Part. The the nightdress part was certainly on Mina's mind. Like I can't go out in just my nightdress, but Lucy went out in just her nightdress. I have to go and save her, regardless of the conventions of the day. That's exactly what I caught. Was there was this idea of yeah, I don't know, protecting her um, reputation and stuff like that. That's the reason why it was so, so you know, scandalous. Was she's wearing her nice shirt? I did not catch the, the shoe part though. So Mina puts her shawl over Lucy and also gives her her own shoes. And then Mina goes into a puddle and puts mud on top of her own feet so that someone wouldn't notice that her feet are bare. But she wants Lucy's feet to be covered. And this is partly, first of all, Lucy's obviously ill, so she's taking care of her friend. But also, you know, Mina's going to marry a lawyer, so she has to protect her own reputation, but not that much. Lucy's going to marry a noble. She's going to marry an aristocrat. So she has to have an unblemished reputation. She can't be walking around without any shoes. And so it's so funny because, of course, like we hear the word Dracula, we know vampire, right? And so <laughs> we're like, Oh, someone in a vampire story is losing a lot of blood. I wonder what could be happening, <laughs> right? <laughs> that was exactly my thought. That's that's my question. Do you know the answer? When this was first published, were people intrigued by the the medical mystery here? I imagine they were. Now, obviously, there were a few a few uh, vampire stories before, and probably the most famous one was from 1872. Sheridan Le Fanu's uh, Carmilla, which is a wonderful story. And Stoker uses a lot of the conventions from Carmilla in this second part, because Carmilla is about a lesbian vampire relationship. And so there, it, and you do have the young girl who's losing blood. She's got these two little spots on her neck. You would barely even notice them, but how mysterious. And so someone who'd read Carmilla would definitely you know, catch on. And of course, Harker has set us up in part one to recognize that Dracula is very terrifying. But we also know that Dracula's in a coffin in a boat right now. <laughs> so, you know, we're not, or he was. So is now. Is it ever described as a coffin? Is it, isn't it just a box? A box? Right. A box. It's not. With some, that with some earth. That's um, me putting my 2020. Exactly. You're right. It's a, it's a large box of earth. And that was actually. That's a pretty awesome scene, right? That, talk about a different narrative moment, that maritime mystery with the, the box in the boat and that feeling of the captain's log and of how utterly terrified and impotent the captain feels 
as each of the men on his crew disappears mysteriously. One at a time, horror movie style. That's where the horror story begins, I think, is on that ship. And, and when you're reading that chapter, it reads like an action movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Your heart's pumping with it. You can just feel like something's happening. All right, so what's going on? The boat's getting closer. The boat's getting closer, and it crashes in. And, uh, That's a throwback to Coleridge's The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, mm-hmm. which is like one of the most popular narrative poems. I know, like, ooh, a narrative poem. How nice. It's a long narrative poem, but it's awesome. And it's a very similar situation where you have a vampire figure that ha- and and you have this mysterious boat and an ancient mariner who tells the story and so albatross albatross <laughs> so the story was from a long time ago <laughs> do you have any peanuts no i've just got this bloody albatross <laughs> sorry you have no idea what that's a reference to that's monty python yes okay moving on but so we have this eastern mythology that stoker is drawing upon but he's also making some literary references to british texts here including ancient mariner i think in that section but like what a different scenario with harker who's telling us his own story and then lucy who i mean there's a couple of letters from her but very very few we're mostly getting other people looking at lucy and thinking oh my gosh what's happening and there's something so poignant about Mina's letters to Lucy never opened. <laughs> Did you guys know that? <laughs> yes, that was mm-hmm. like, and, and then if they're never opened, then how are we supposed to, I mean, so the information is never being revealed. But well, somehow, it's revealed to I, us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah it's, it's revealed start, to us, just not to the characters. The characters never received this information. Mm-hmm. And, and that's just a fascinating way of, of looking at it because, she took time to write it, but you know it's never open. But we get the information. I guess we have godlike powers. Well, we're looking at it from years later. We are seeing this information through these letters, through this history. That's that's kind of how history works. Is we are seeing it from the perspective of all of these players in this. Are you saying we are immortals? Well, I don't don't say blah, blah, blah. (laughs) (laughs) So I think this focus on Lucy here really raises questions of gender. And I just, as you're reading, especially if, if you're reading for the first time for you, Chip, what kind of power do you think Mina and Lucy have, if any? Well, Lucy certainly is... a woman of the age, I should say, maybe represents the previous age where, you know, she is, um, I don't want to say she's eye candy, but she's beautiful. She's got multiple suitors. And certainly um, that means that, you know, she's multiple men are looking at her for something. Um, Mina is certainly, um, she seems much, much more of a, like um, when we, t- we were reading the, the Sherlock Holmes stories and you were talking about the pre-suffrage this is like, she's like the modern woman in many ways. She's, she's um, the sensible person who can take action. Certainly just seems to be much more in control and has no problem taking maybe a little bit of uh, leadership uh, on some of the, the things that they're going through. There, there's certainly maybe two different views of femininity or the female um, 
person of that age. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And, and we get it for the men too, right? He sure. really creates, I don't want to call them stock characters because they're pretty great characters and that seems to diminish the accomplishment. But each of his characters represents a very specific kind of femininity or masculinity. And mm-hmm. Mina is very self-made. She's very mm-hmm. efficient. She structures her accomplishments around how they help her lovely husband, Jonathan, but she's pretty accomplished, right? Mm-hmm. And two people we first see who are victims are Jonathan and Lucy, not Mina, right? We'll have to keep an eye on that as we go forward, of course. Really? But she's she's certainly not playing the victim thus far. She seems like the more powerful of those three characters. She's the one in charge where Jonathan has almost no power when he's in the castle. He is powerless. And Lucy, Lucy certainly has power in her choice of the three suitors, which is a very interesting play, especially for Victorian era conversations about, you know, female uh, ability to choose and uh, we've we've read so many stories where they women did not get the the power of choice in this era uh, that's very interesting let me ask since lucy is part of this medical mystery where's all her blood going now here we get some blood transfusions and obviously we're right at the cusp of this technology. This would be a brand new technology in the late Victorian period. And we obviously don't know as much about blood typing because as Van Helsing explains, the the thing you really need to do a good blood transfusion is a strong young man. And if you love the person, all the better. Like, that's how blood transfusions work, right? It's left unsaid is they're all universal donors, right? They all have the same... (laughs) That was just not in their knowledge base at the time. They did not have that knowledge yet. That was... They didn't even... I don't think they even imagined that were different types of blood. Blood is blood. Right. She's missing some. You strong men have some. Let's go for it. So it's really interesting because I think... This So there's an article that I always have my students read when I teach Dracula. It's a really old article, 1984, uh, by Christopher Kraft, and it's called Kiss Me With Those Red Lips, Gender and Inversion in Bram Stoker's Dracula. And this is one of those sort of 35-year-old articles that still totally opens up the text. And so craft is really about following the blood. And blood has a lot of different meanings, right? So we know like you're not supposed to see people's blood something has gone wrong once you see somebody's blood so there's a sort of gore element of blood it's the life-giving force exactly but blood is also life force right Mm -hmm. within vampire mythology blood is well blood in general is also references kinship right someone of your blood is someone that you're related to in vampire mythology you flip notions of kinship right on their heads right because how do you make a new vampire it's through a blood exchange Mm -hmm. right and so what craft notes is that within vampire mythology and we see this all in dracula that prototypical late 19th century vampire story we have really interesting sense of gender because you don't actually need a heterosexual encounter to procreate the Mm -hmm. vampire 
actually has this different ability of procreation. And because the main sexual organ of the vampire is the mouth, everybody has a mouth. So now we are outside of genital norms of heteronormativity. And this is why Chip, you brought up the other day, when was the, when were the Oscar Wilde sodomy trials? This is speaking to a very specific anxiety about sexuality. And so when we think about Lucy and the fact that the blood exchange, when all of these men donate to Lucy, it's really structured as a very like loving thing to do. This isn't like just a medical thing. This is something more. So think about when Van Helsing meets Arthur, he says, he is so young and strong and of blood so pure that we need not defibrinate it. <laughs> that's, a, that's some good blood I can see on that guy. That guy's got good blood right there. I remember meeting my uh, you know, my wife's uh, parents, and that's what they said about me. <laughs> Here's the thing, right? It's so laughable to us in 2020, but it's so earnestly said, right? Correct. And what does it mean for Arthur to have good blood? Oh, guess what? He's an aristocrat. Mm-hmm. Father is Lord Godalming, right? And so, just like as we know, at the end of this section, Arthur's father dies, as do all of the parents that we've ever met in this. In this, all the all the parent figures die at it's the like end. Disney wrote it. I mean, really. <laughs> but oh, we, we don't have parents dying at the beginning, Steve. Oh, that's <laughs> the beginning, right? In Disney stories, it's always the parents are di- dead at the beginning. It's usually the mothers too. Hmm. <laughs> but. It's so funny because when I teach this, students sometimes are like, wait, 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 who's this guy, Godalming? And it's like, oh, like as soon as Arthur's father dies, Arthur is Lord Godalming, mm-hmm. right? And so him having this pure, strong blood that we don't even need to defibrinate, he actually is, he represents like England, right? He is of aristocratic bloodline. He also loves Lucy very purely. Now, when Quincy Morris, the American, when he arrives, by thunder, his he's got fiery blood. That's he's he's really loud and big. Look how big that American is. So Van Helsing says, "A brave man's blood is the best thing on this earth. When a woman is in trouble, you're a man, and no mistake." And so Quincy Morris, the American, he's also able to donate a lot of blood to Lucy. Now, the interesting one, of course, is Seward. And so Seward, of course, is the third man who is totally in love with Lucy. And we hear about this from Seward's own diary. It was with a feeling of personal pride that I could see a faint tinge of color steal back into the pallid cheeks and lips. No man knows till he experiences it, what it is to feel his own lifeblood drawn away into the veins of the woman he loves. So this experience of donating blood is very, very much a metaphor for sexuality. Mm -hmm. And so each of these three men purely loves Lucy. And don't forget, at first Van Helsing is like, don't tell Arthur, the fiance, that your blood is also in there with his, (laughs) right? Right. (laughs) He's losing more and more blood. He's like, we're going to have to go past just the fiance's blood. We're going to have to go to some other suitors. It's a great metaphor. And of course it makes you think if donating blood like this is a sexual act, 
or like a loving act. What does that make vamp? What does that make Dracula? Uh-huh. And we've explored this for the, the next 120 years where there's so many stories where that idea of sexuality and that story of the vampire are so intertwined. Of course, one of my favorites is Bloodthirsty with our friend Monique Parent. Who, that's, a, that's a lesbian vampire story where the very powerful, strong female vampire is bringing a whole group of people into her nest and making this family. But there's this sexual component to this movement of blood. The biting of the neck is a is like a sensual moment. And it, it, it starts here with Bram Stoker. There is a sensual moment in the in the sucking of the blood from the neck here. And also in the donating of the blood through a scientific means of the operation as right. continually references it. That's the least sensual method, but it is right. still loving. It is still family. As, and you still as, wouldn't really want to tell Arthur if you could help it. Right. As these men are being drained of their blood. <laughs> the, the old man gets his blood, right? This, there's right there's there is certainly more metaphor than we're than we're approaching on this one. Oh, absolutely and that's what christopher Kraft does in his article too because as he notes arthur the young aristocrat is the first to donate blood to lucy well where does that blood go that strong young blood that's so pure it goes to dracula the dracula gets that blood right ah. dracula who had his eye on Jonathan Harker in the beginning and said, he's mine to those three women vampires. Now, through Lucy's body, he has actually consumed the blood of Arthur, Lord Godalming, of Quincy Morris, the American, and of John Seward, our psychiatrist. Hmm. Our scientist. So it just, it just seems like the Dracula could be more efficient, knowing that this is draining the life force out of Lucy why wouldn't he go get like five or six other people? Like we come and visit you on Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night. The idea of why, why only one, why, why only Lucy? Because, because he gets everybody's blood through her. It's like, it's like the best. He's already getting his blood through Lucy and they're just filling her back up. <laughs> it's, it's the best efficiency ever. But I mean, you have a whole city of people. <laughs> Yeah, but there's there's the metaphor. It uh, takes away from the metaphor. The metaphor is a sexual relationship, a a love relationship, which is then sent to this evil, to this demon who is uh, a succubus. Uh, for for, for, <laughs> for I know that's not a, not the same thing, but they're they're similar. Mm hmm. Well, and each of these characters also represents a different way of knowing. Obviously, this is a supernatural story, right? That's part of the horror. And we have, again, the epistemological questions that I always like to think about in this period. So Jonathan Seward is pure science, right? Morris, Quincy Morris is the strong guy. Godalming, the aristocrat. We're about to see him change his name, which is super interesting. And also god Al god alming god almighty i mean he's kind of this powerful like there's some power in his name mm -hmm. and then jonathan harker represents this sort of effete white collar masculinity and he's the person who knows the least right he has all his lawyer knowledge but 
he had a major mental breakdown when he left Transylvania. He doesn't remember anything about it. Mm-hmm. And we're about to see Mina read his journal with big eyes and <laughs> growing horror as she reads his journal because she's about to know what trauma Jonathan underwent, which he has completely repressed from his own memory. How interesting to, to think about where we're at in history, in the Victorian era, talking about psychology, talking about psychiatry. The repression of memories is certainly just just starting the idea here and boy this captures that so well where he does not know he knows he had something there was some trauma he is traumatized but he does not know what happened that's fascinating so he is separated from what knowledge he has gathered and then that brings us to mina and the word uh, the phrase a woman's knowledge is brought up a couple of times so That's a question that I'd love to get your perspectives on right now, but we'll keep thinking about. To what degree is Mina's perspective, her woman's way, to what degree is that privileged or not privileged? Do you guys see Mina as a figure of some power or as a potential victim? Or how how are you seeing her here at the midpoint of the novel? I definitely read her as a person with a lot of power in this. She is, in a lot of ways, the protagonist of this story so far. She, There's no exact one protagonist, but she is one of the characters that is feeding us the knowledge that she acquired through all these different sources. And it seems to me that she is very smart and very capable. She's protecting Lucy in this whole situation. And now she's protecting Harker. Now that Harker has returned, she's the, the protector here. She's got the awareness and she knows when I say her place with Lucy, she is, you know, like, like a motherly figure, like this is, this is the proper thing to do. And with Harker, you know, she's supporting him, but she's like, I've got to get him strong. Uh, this idea of not just a caretaker, but certainly, uh, you know, she's going to make sure he, he has the strength to, to go forward. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that you guys both have kind of mentioned, and Steve especially, is the idea that there is no single protagonist in this story. Right. And that's going to be a theme of vampire literature going forward. And it wasn't before Dracula. So that Carmilla that I talked about before, there's no team. So here we have a collaborative group of people who are about to realize exactly what they're facing and they have to work together. Mm-hmm. Each of the team is crucial as we move forward. And when we look at like more contemporary texts like Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which I think is awesome, is one of the texts that comes to mind. But even something that maybe is a little less universally beloved, like the Twilight series, <laughs> you have, you now have teams, mm-hmm. you have to have collaboration. And traditionally, a collaborative model has been more associated with women than with men, the collaboration versus competition. And here we have a very collaborative model of vampire fighting under Van Helsing, our leader. Which brings us to, I actually, if you guys don't mind, I want to read a couple of quotes about Van Helsing. He's so interesting. So Jonathan Seward is the one who brings him in. He's like, you guys, this is a medical mystery that I'm going to have to bring in my own professor. And Van Helsing is from Amsterdam. So he's a Dutch scientist, a Dutch doctor. And Seward says, he is a philosopher and a metaphysician and one of the most advanced scientists of his day. 
And he has, I believe, an absolutely open mind. This with an iron nerve, a temper of the ice brook, an indomitable resolution, self-command and toleration, exalted from virtues to blessings, and the kindliest and truest heart that beats. These form his equipment for the noble work that he is doing for mankind, work both in theory and practice, for his views are as wide as his all-embracing sympathy. Now that, my friend, Jeez. Quite, quite a little get narrative him, of accomplishments. Get him into the office. We need that guy. Boy, oh boy. He's, <laughs> Andy can bend steel with his eyes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> we'll need to call in the Avengers. <laughs> but look at what Seward is doing there. He's like, he's both a philosopher and a scientist. Mm -hmm. He is both kind and steady. He does theory and practice like this is a very well he says an all-embracing sympathy and i think it's hilarious that near the end of this section van helsing mentions oh and you know i was a lawyer before i became a doctor and we're like what <laughs> <laughs> sure why not sure why not throw it in there bring it, <laughs> throw it in there. he is so much <laughs> he's he is like the strong character he is the superman coming into the team that is really bringing the knowledge from all of these different directions and getting to the heart of this matter but he's still not the protagonist here exactly maybe he looks like logan or wolverine steve i'm just gonna throw that out there <laughs> he should absolutely look like logan but a little older um <laughs> we're about to find out he's a very serious catholic and so that's where just spoiler alert part three we're going to talk about religion a fair bit more and like when you have this supernatural threat that's now arrived on your shores in Britain, how do you combat that? Can you combat the supernatural with science? Hmm. Or do you need to turn to Delve into the supernatural itself to fight the supernatural. Yeah, there's, there's, uh, there's been a lot of stories like this that have yes. come after Dracula, Pam, and I think I know the answer, but we'll find out when part three next week for sure. Now, after that wonderful catalog of Van Helsing's strengths, right after Lucy dies, and by the way, did you guys expect Lucy to die? Well, well, she was, they kept draining her for blood, so at some point <laughs> she was going to die. Um and, you know, the garlic didn't help uh, because when mom comes in and cleans up. <laughs> What's all this garlic doing in here? Get this out of here. It smells. <laughs> yes. Lucy's mom in my head certainly is a character from South Park. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, they seem to protect her. And then um, then they don't protect her. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're trying to protect her, but she is certainly... Yes, I expected Lucy to turn vampire because I know the vampire mythology and I know this story. But yeah, I, I don't know... Boy, I, I don't know how this story could have gone if it wasn't with a victim. That someone whom we love, that's my favorite thing about storytelling. If if you can make me love a character and then suffer the tragedy of their passing. And boy, Bram Stoker really does that well here. You got Van Helsing uh, saying, all right, we're going to cut off her head and take her heart out. 
And there was mm-hmm. like, what? Why would you do that? <laughs> Don't question me. We're going to do this. <laughs> I'm the expert. But isn't it interesting that right after Lucy's death, there's this wonderful, wonderful passage, and it's in Dr. Seward's diary. And it's about Van Helsing. He says, the moment we were alone in the carriage, Van Helsing gave way to a regular fit of hysterics. He has denied to me since that it was hysterics and insisted that it was only his sense of humor asserting itself under very terrible conditions. He laughed till he cried. And I had to draw down the blinds lest anyone should see us and misjudge. And then he cried till he laughed again and laughed and cried together, just as a woman does. I tried to be stern with him as one is to a woman under the circumstances, but it had no effect. Men and women are so different in manifestations of nervous strength or weakness. Exclamation point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that seems to to be being addressed today. I don't think someone would write that today. (laughs) Uh, This is notable for sure. This is definitely the idea of the time, this, uh, this idea of hysterics that we've talked about before in the Victorian era, and especially with women and, and drawing that parallel with this moment where he, he's so overcome with emotion that that Seward has to draw the drapes just in case somebody sees it. But you can you can easily imagine that. You feel like you have the answer. You're seeing positive results from it. There's this blood infusion and it's still it's not working. She's she's failing and she's died. Mm-hmm. You can imagine the the medical professionals who are going through this right now with COVID and seeing great results followed by a huge decline in health and, and tragedy at the end. And the the mental, whew, I, I can't imagine, I can't imagine what it's like to be seeing that over and over again with case after case. Well, and Dracula has been seen as a story about contagion, about infection, about pandemic, about the dangers of allowing people from elsewhere to come into your country and bring their diseases, right? So vampirism has been read in that way as a reflection on disease, Mm, contagion. And transmission. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of exactly what you're just talking about, that medical anxiety and stress of like, how are we going to handle this? Mm -hmm. We know how to treat this, this illness. And I think it's interesting here that John Seward, psychiatrist, he feels like he would know how to handle a hysterical woman, right? Mm -hmm. He says, I know what, you know, this is how one is with a woman under the circumstances because hysteria was associated, was named after the uterus, right? Mm -hmm. It is very much considered a female condition. And it's interesting that Van Helsing won't admit to it after. Like, he's a doctor, right? And he's just like, oh, I was just, no. I was just trying to be funny. And I was kidding. Yeah. Fine. I was I joking, right? <laughs> First, I deny that I said it. And then when there's proof, then I say, oh, no, I was just kidding. That's what we do in 2020. Well, Van, Van, <sighs> Van Helsing um, reveals what he wants to reveal. <laughs> That too. That that is part of that masculine <laughs> idea, especially when it comes to health. I will reveal only that which I choose to reveal. I will not tell you when I'm not healthy. Uh, yeah, that mm. that never happened. Mm. I, I didn't. I <laughs> yeah, I was kidding. I, I'm mm. up and at him in three days. 
No yeah. other. It's magic. Hmm. <laughs> Magical thinking. So, <laughs> so the other part of this chapter, these these chapters that I found super interesting was the fact that we actually lose three parental figures in this section, right? Three older people die and leave fortunes. So Arthur's father dies and he leaves a title. I don't know that he's especially wealthy. We don't, we're not sure of that. But uh, enough. I mean, aristocrat but, enough. Of course, but he's especially leaving the title. Right. Then Lucy's mother dies and she leaves her fortune to Lucy and Arthur. So that was interesting that even though they hadn't married yet, Arthur was the inheritant of Lucy. And so now that fortune, I think, will be very helpful to his estate, his titled estate. And then interestingly, Jonathan Harker's mentor also dies, leaving a fortune to Jonathan and Mina. And I was curious, Chip, I always turn to you in these matters. How do you think these questions of inheritance might fit with themes of horror and the vampire? That's an interesting question. Other than the deaths going on, I really wasn't drawing a lot of thoughts on like where this money was going other than to Jonathan Harker and his, and his wife were all of a sudden having an estate available to them. And the vampire, Dracula, has to have protection, so certainly needs to have uh, resources available to them. And you know, how, how does he get them from here? I don't know, but maybe, maybe it's a way of, of protecting themselves. I mean, obviously... We, we think of a vampire as an immortal. Mm-hmm. And so resources not only get consumed, but, but they have to grow over time. And if we go back to where he came from, you've got this massive castle. It's old, old, old. The ultimate goal could be to create something in Britain, in London, that would allow um, him to have that same type of protection there. And that's just, you know, off the top of my head, just being hit with a question like this. <laughs> Sorry, Chip, I didn't That's mean right. to on the spot. But- when we think of immortals, we might think of time travel and the idea of putting a penny in a savings account and letting it grow for a million years, and then you have a huge amount of money when you travel to uh, a million years in the future. The idea of the immortal holding on to their money and having that resource as opposed to dying and giving it to the next generation is certainly on display here. That's a good point. Um, the idea that living in a, a very small apartment for a vampire can be very dangerous because, you know, rents or whatever those things. But living in a place that, you know, a castle was used as an example or mansion, hmm. and being able to create protections in that and then being able to hire the protections for that allows them to sleep during the day and um, allow party all them- night. Well, and, and allows them to attract people who want to be part of that or any number of things. I, I'm just, this certainly um, could be an interesting way of looking at this. Well, and I think also the sort of the question of like procreation and inheritance, right? This notion that the vampire chooses who his child, quote unquote, will be, chooses an adult to, that will become his progeny, right? Mm-hmm. And so then what are the resources associated with each of the characters? 
Right. Yeah. And also that exactly what you were just saying, uh, both of you guys, that within human life, people gather resources, which they then pass on to the next generation, to their children. But in fact, that is one of the threats of immortality, right? Is the threat of gathering resources and never passing them on to anyone. Mm-hmm. So I think that's on display here in a really interesting way. Of course, that brings me to True Blood, the HBO uh-huh. series, where yes. there's there's so many next generations of passing down into the next generation of vampires. Very interesting. It's the Sookie Stackhouse series. Yes. Blaine we- Harris. Very interesting novels, actually. There is one thing in Chapter 13 that you haven't mentioned, Pam, and that is verisimilitude. My goodness, do tell. <laughs> Steve, Steve, Steve chapter- using big words. Yes, I, I learn, Chip. I learn. There's a thing called verisimilitude, Pam. I don't know if you've heard of it. Mm-hmm. It is yes. the idea that maybe, just maybe, this story really took place. And we get the real background of the real world in this narrative because the actress, Ellen Terry, is mentioned in Chapter 13. She was a beloved superstar actress of the day and putting her name in chapter 13 Bram Stoker was saying you know like your life there's this actress named Ellen Terry who's really important (laughs) (laughs) I missed that entirely I love that I highlighted it Nice. (laughs) I also like that you noted Steve that Mina doesn't meet Van Helsing until chapter 13 I totally missed that. I did miss, not right? understand yeah. that yeah. in this storytelling with this with the letters going back and forth, Mina gets a letter that says Van Helsing and she goes, "Who the heck is Van Helsing?" And we're like, oh, "Van Helsing, he might be the center of the whole story. He might be the protagonist." And she's like, "I don't know who that the guy is." <laughs> <laughs> it's a reminder, I think, that everything is really really separate and In part three, everything comes together. And that storytelling with the team that you mentioned earlier, that idea that Mina is the protagonist of her own story, Van Helsing is the protagonist of his story, and and to a lesser extent, there are other characters who are their own protagonists. That's I love that style of storytelling. That's the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where they all come together, their their own protagonists first, and then they fight evil together. One of the things I, I do want to mention that I found myself enjoying the reading much more when I was reading the text and as opposed to sometimes you can go for a walk and you can listen to like an audible recording, but I found I was getting more out of it because there are a number of characters and sort of the stories going on, there's dates that if I could read the text and listen at the same time, yeah, I was getting more from the story. I, I found myself sometimes being lost and I had to kind of go back a little bit. And this is how that was my solution to, to that. And that's why we read to children while putting our finger on the words so that they can listen and see. Both senses, hearing and sight, you get the information two different ways. Thank you. (laughs) The power of children's reading. (laughs) Well, the power of education, my friend. The power of teaching. The power of showing kids the way. This is the way. This is great. I've, I'm enjoying this book 
as much as I expected to enjoy it, this is this is great writing. I'm glad that we're doing this. I hope everybody out there is enjoying it and seeing these stories, maybe for the, for the first time in their original form, drawing all of those parallels that we've seen for the last 120 years. So what are we going to read for next week, Pam? Part three of the novel, chapters 14 to 20. All right. And we get into what's going to happen. And it's in, it's in black and white. <laughs> classic. It is classic <laughs> word. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the children of the night. Yes. I don't drink wine. Good. <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna go into all. We're gonna get into all of the 1930s Universal Monsters version of this eventually. But we are we're really in the text at this point. Thanks for trying to draw us out, though, Chip. At the very end of the show, I don't know, Chip. I think we have enough information to survive another week. What do you think? Only if we can come back next week, Steve. What do you think, Pam? Do, are we prepared? Do we have enough garlic and crucifixes? <laughs> we are ready for the week, my friends. As long as Lucy's mom doesn't come in and clean up. Why ever? Oh, it smells like garlic. <laughs> <laughs> if you need more information, give us a call or a text. Our phone number is 805-410-4867. Our website is sandwiches at irregularhours.com. Our email is sandwiches at irregularhours at gmail.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and YouTube. I want to thank you again for listening to Sandwiches at Irregular Hours. I'm Steve Fodor. And I'm Chip Hesselberg. And I'm Pam Bedore. We are the children of the night. The children of the night. The beautiful music.